You can have a seat. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Norton. If you happen to be new here today, um, last Sunday we started uh, a new series, and it's a pretty unique series we're doing for a few weeks here at uh, New Denver. We kicked off a series, and it's called Science and Faith. <clears throat> and we talked about the idea that um, sometimes these two things are pitted against one another. Uh, faith is believing in something that you cannot see, right? And Science is the practice of observing and studying things you can see. Uh, science works in the realm of the physical world. Uh, faith um, is really concerned with the metaphysical world. Meta means beyond or behind. Uh, those deeper truths and realities beyond and behind the physical ones. Uh, faith tends to ask why questions. Science tends to wrestle with how Questions. So last week we said, even though it's tempting for us to pit these two things uh, against one another, they're really just two ways of knowing and understanding truth in our world. Now, sometimes they give us different perspectives, and uh, sometimes they're just answering different questions. And in that sense, science and faith actually complement one another quite well. In fact, we all intuitively rely on both in our lives. We rely on science and technology every day. And we also rely on faith. So there's really no tension or conflict between the two until we get to a specific issue where there is a conflict, particularly when we read certain parts of the Bible. And none of those is bigger than the so-called debate between creation and evolution. What Genesis says about the origins of our world and life, and then what science says. And so uh, today and next Sunday, we're going to do something pretty unique here, something that's a little bit different than we would normally do during um, the message time. We're just going to tackle this debate head on. So today, here's what we're, we're going to do. Um, I want to talk specifically about some problems with the whole way that this issue is framed and then we're also going to talk about some problems with certain ways of reading and interpreting the early chapters of Genesis. So lots of talk about problems today. And the next week we'll come back and I'll offer a solution, um, a way forward. But that means today uh, I'm going to leave you hanging a little bit, which for some of you could be frustrating. So if you're here today or you're listening today, um, you have to promise me you will be back here next Sunday morning because then we'll get some resolution to a lot of the questions that we raised today. All right? Everybody promise? All right. Very good. Uh, let's dive in. Let me describe uh, three problems with the way this whole issue, if you've heard of this, if you've been around church, you grew up in church, you might have heard this. If you're new to faith, or you're new to following Jesus, or you're trying to figure out what that means, maybe this is all brand new for you. But let me just walk through three problems with um, the way this whole debate is often framed. Number one, is presupposing evolution equals atheism? And this is really important because we often assume or believe or presuppose that affirming evolution equals atheism. So uh, evolution is a scientific theory about biological processes. By the way, in science, theory means 
uh, not a guess or a conjecture or an opinion. It's a unified, established system of principles of understanding, right? Just like um, Einstein's theory of relativity is not his guess or opinion. It's an established system of principles for understanding how time and space um, and matter relate. So um, evolution is a scientific understanding of the biological processes by which living organisms adapt, change, and evolve over time. Just like gravity is a scientific understanding of the forces exerted on an apple by the earth when it's falling from a tree, just like thermodynamics is a scientific understanding of the way the heat energy is transferred from your gas furnace, hopefully, to your home or to your apartment uh, this weekend. So here's a question. If I or if you affirm the principles of thermodynamics, does that make us atheists? Of course not. Right? These two things have nothing to do with one another. If we affirm the principles of gravity, of electromagnetism, does that make us atheists? Of course not. No, right. In fact, I actually think God created gravity and he created thermodynamics. He created these things to make our world work. And the same is true with biological processes. I can affirm how biological processes work in our world, and that has nothing to do with whether I believe in God or not. Now, it is true there are some scientists who are militant atheists like Richard Dawkins, but they're atheists for different reasons. They're typically atheists because they've adopted a perspective that says the physical world is the only real world. If it cannot be seen or observed or studied or measured, then it's not real. There is no metaphysical world. Which, by the way, is actually a belief itself. That claim cannot be tested or measured or proven. So that's a belief itself. But the larger point is that someone can affirm the scientific principles of biological processes just like someone can affirm the processes of chemistry that take place every single day, and that does not inherently make them an atheist. Here's the second problem. Number two is presupposing creation equals creationism. And this is where things might get confusing. So creation simply means that God is the ultimate creator. The Apostle Paul says this. This is from the New Testament. He's speaking one day and he says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else for in him we live and move and have our being. So he's affirming creation. That God is the ultimate creator and is the source of all being. But when most people talk about this specific debate between like creation and evolution, they're not talking about creation generally. They're referring to creationism. And creationism is much more specific. So let me give you a definition. Uh, creationism is a specific belief in the interpretation of early Genesis as a literal, historical, and scientifically accurate description of instantaneous divine creation. Now we'll talk about what that means and whether that's a good way to interpret early Genesis or not in just a moment, but it's just one way, okay? And you don't have to interpret the early chapters of Genesis that way. In fact, 
Creationists who interpret early Genesis that way do not interpret other biblical passages about creation in that literal and scientifically accurate way. For example, in Psalm 139, David is praying to God and he says this, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. My frame, or literally my my bones, my skeleton, was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Now, is David saying that God used knitting needles to create him? That God was literally inside of his mother's womb, or maybe inside the depths of the earth, because those are actually two very different things. But somehow God was in there, and he had yarn, and he had thread, and he had needles, and he was sort of weak. Is this a scientific description of how life is created and then how a human baby grows and develops? Of course not, right? It's a poetic description of God as creator. And we can all affirm that without saying that this passage should be taken literally or scientifically. So, just like we have to separate the idea of evolution from atheism, we also need to separate the idea of creation from the specific interpretation of creationism. Affirming creation does not equal creationism. And that leads to a third problem with the framing of this debate. Number three, presupposing creation and evolution are mutually exclusive options. In other words, assuming that these two things are inherently contradictory. And now you can see why the first two statements are so important. Because if evolution does equal atheism, then that means evolution is not just a scientific claim, it's also a faith claim. And if affirming creation means you have to affirm a specific creationist interpretation of Genesis, well, then creation is not just a faith claim. It's also a scientific claim about exactly how God created the world. And that's why this has often become an either-or debate. It's because we equate this understanding of specific biological processes with atheism which is silly, again, we don't do that with any other scientific processes. And it's because we often conflate the idea of creation with creationism, this very specific interpretation of Genesis. And that's what I want to turn to now, because there's a number of problems with creationism. And so first, let me distinguish between a couple of main types of creationism. And again, if you grew up in church, you might be familiar. You might have heard some of these things. Maybe this is totally new to you. But let me just walk through this real quick. Uh, The first is called young earth creationism. This is the view that the early chapters of Genesis should be taken exactly literally. That everything in the world was created in six 24-hour days, as Genesis 1 describes, and that this all happened because you can add up the dates and some of the genealogies about six to 10,000 years ago. So that's why it's called young earth creationism, because the earth is very, very, very young. Others hold to old earth creationism. So they admit that the evidence is overwhelming, that the earth is a whole lot older than a few thousand years old, but they believe that when Genesis talks about these days, everyone's looking for their keys right now. <laughs> we'll just wait. <laughs> I think you have to wait like 20 seconds for the alarm to stop, right? 
oh, somebody did it. Does anyone want to admit that they're the, no, I'm joking. Um, okay, so let's go back. Come on back, all right? Old Earth creationism admits that the evidence for the Earth being really old is a whole lot stronger. And so they believe that when Genesis talks about the days, remember day one, God created this, day two, God created this, these are not literal days. The Hebrew word yom there actually refers to much longer periods of time, so potentially millions and millions of years, right? So um, this word day is not to be taken literally, but everything else in the account, the order and what happened is all to be taken literally, particularly the creation of humans, that God still created this man named Adam and this woman named Eve in these very literal, single, instantaneous acts. So while young earth creationism and old earth creationism differ a little bit, both perspectives maintain the idea that the details of Genesis are scientifically accurate. That even if the ancient authors didn't know it, what they are doing is providing to us an accurate, modern, textbook-like, step-by-step process and account of exactly how the world was created. Now, if you hold one of these perspectives, and there's lots of nuances and sort of sub-perspectives and all that, but if you hold one of these general perspectives, that's totally fine. This is not a central issue of the Christian faith. People can have different perspectives on how to interpret these chapters. But there are some significant flaws in interpreting these chapters in that literal scientific way. And maybe you've never heard them or maybe you've never wrestled with them. So I just want to share those with you this morning. Three, in specific, three big problems with a creationist interpretation. So here's number one. Is reading modern science into ancient texts. And so this is the biggest problem. Presuming that this text that was written thousands of years ago would actually contain and conform to modern scientific understanding. In fact, it's, it's quite clear that the authors of these ancient texts had a very limited scientific understanding of how the universe worked. Uh, they did not know that the moon was not its own source of light. They thought that it produced its own light. They believed there was some sort of uh, ceiling or roof or dome over our heads, that that was the sky, and that it was kind of like a planetarium, and that the lights that moved across this dome, uh, the stars and the sun and the moon, moved just from one end of the dome to the other end of the dome every single day. And so that's actually where we get these concepts of sunrise and sunset. The sun rises over here at the dome, it moves all the way across the arc, and it sets on this side of the dome. They also thought above this dome or ceiling, uh, there was an ocean of water, because where else does rain come from when it rains? So they thought there must be holes in the ceiling, and God's working these valves every time he wants the, the rain to fall, and that's where the water is coming from. Now, of course, we now know that the moon does not produce its own light. It is just reflecting light from the sun. That there's not actually a dome or a ceiling with little holes in it and an ocean of water above. That the sun is not moving across the sky or even around the earth. 
We know that the earth is spinning. And as the earth spins and rotates, it reveals the sun for about 12 hours, and that's what we call day. And then it hides the sun for about another 12 hours, and that's what we call night. We know that the ancient authors did not have this modern scientific knowledge. So it never would have been their goal to teach their original audience or to teach some distant audience like us some kind of knowledge that they themselves did not even have. So what we have is simply an ancient text. It's written in their language, Hebrew, not ours, English. It's written in their culture, from their historical perspective, from their understanding of the world, with their inaccurate scientific knowledge, and with their own purposes in mind, not ours. Which means it would be extremely irresponsible of us to read modern scientific answers to modern scientific questions into these ancient texts that they are not asking or even trying to answer. Here's the second problem with a creationist interpretation of Genesis. Literary inconsistencies. So when you read Genesis uh, in this literal scientific way, there's all sorts of problems or inconsistencies. For starters, in Genesis 1, um, remember it tells the days, day 1, day 2, day 3. Well, it says, first God made the plants, and then he made animals, and then he made human beings. You get to Genesis 2, and it describes the whole process again, but the second time, it says God made human beings first. In fact, it explicitly says there were no plants on earth at this point. God made humans first, then he made the plants, then he made the other animals. Now, if we're reading these chapters literally and scientifically, like order step by step, that doesn't make any sense. The same story is giving two very different orders. It also says that on day one, God created the light and the darkness He called the light day. He called the darkness night. He does some stuff on day two, some stuff on day three. And then on day four, he creates the sun and the moon. One light for the day and one for the night. So what gave light to the earth for the first three days? What marked day and night before there was a sun? I mean, if this is a scientific account, It is scientifically wrong. You cannot have day and night without a sun. And that is particularly problematic if you're an old earth creationist. Because remember, in that interpretation, the days represent millions and millions of years. How do we have millions and millions of years of life on earth without a sun? It also says God created the plants on day three. What do plants require to live? What would any good Colorado marijuana grower tell you? They require light and photosynthesis to live. How did plants live for millions of years without a sun? One more inconsistency. Genesis 2 and 3 describe those first humans. You remember Adam and Eve? And then in Genesis 4, we're told they have children, Cain and Abel. And then we're told Cain marries a wife. And then he goes to live in a city where a whole bunch of other people are living. Where did Cain's wife come from? I mean, the only humans at this point are Adam and Eve, because those are the only ones God has created. 
And Cain and Abel, where did Cain's wife come from? It means they must have had other children that the story doesn't tell us, which means Cain's wife is his sister? Ew. Right? Where did all the other people come from? All these cities of people were Adam and Eve procreating that much and that quickly to populate cities that Cain can move to? See, if you're taking this account literally, there's all kinds of problems. In fact, in order to make it work, you have to add into the story a whole bunch of things that are not in the story, which undermines the entire idea that this is a literal, straightforward textbook explanation of how everything happened. Here's the third problem with creationism. Number three, disparity with all scientific evidence. So I mentioned this one last because for me, the biggest problems with creationism are biblical. It tends to misread or misinterpret the biblical passage to begin with. But also that kind of interpretation goes against all scientific evidence we have from every major scientific discipline. Geologists all agree that the earth is billions of years old. Just go to the Grand Canyon and look at the rocks there. Or talk to John Chapman. He's our resident geologist. Atmospheric scientists all agree that the earth is billions of years old. They study ice core samples that go back millions of years. They can see layers of volcanic ash in the ice core samples from volcanoes that erupted tens and hundreds of thousands of years ago. Astronomers all agree that the earth and the universe is billions of years old. There are stars at the edge of our universe, but because our universe is so big, the light we see from them has taken millions of years at the speed of light to arrive at us. Paleontologists all agree that the fossil record couldn't be more clear that living organisms have been around for millions of years. We have accurate dates of ancient fossils, and the fossil record displays an extremely clear evolution of life on Earth. Archaeologists and anthropologists all agree about the process of adaptation as it relates to humans, homo sapiens, in comparison to other close human ancestors. Biologists and geneticists now agree. And for genetics, uh, that world has exploded in the last 30 years with understanding, seeing the links between different organisms and their DNA, including humans, all underscoring a biological process of evolutionary development. So what if you start with a literal scientific interpretation of Genesis that goes against everything else we've now learned from science, what do you do? Well, you can double down on your literal scientific interpretation, and you can suggest, well, maybe God made the world to look old to us. Maybe God created those fossils of dead organisms that never actually existed. Maybe he created ice cores with volcanic ash within them to look like they came from volcanoes that never actually exploded. Maybe he created light on its way to earth to look like it came from stars at the edge of our universe that don't actually exist. 
Maybe he created our genetics to be so eerily similar to other animals that we would come to very confusing conclusions about them. Of course, all of that is an option. But it requires us to believe that God is really sneaky, that he snuck modern science into ancient texts, that he's deceitful. He made fossils and light from stars and volcanic ash to to look like it's really old when it's actually not. And he's confusing. Because he told us to use our minds and to use science to understand the world, and then everything we learned using our minds and science, he told us it was all completely wrong in the Bible. I want you to listen to a warning from a guy named Augustine. Augustine was a theologian in the 5th century. He lived 1,500 years ago. So his knowledge of science was a little bit better than the ancient authors, but still nothing like our modern knowledge today. But he loved the book of Genesis. He spent his life studying it, and he wrote a commentary called The Literal Meaning of Genesis. Because Augustine, like everyone else at that time, took the account literally. But the more he studied it, the more problems he saw with it. In fact, he raised the same questions I've raised this morning. He wrote in his commentary, how in the world is there light for four days if there's not a sun? So when he gets to the end of his commentary, he tries to pull it all together and wrestle with these questions. And here's what he wrote. He says, in matters that are obscure and far beyond our vision, even in such as we may find treated in Holy Scripture, different interpretations are sometimes possible without prejudice to the faith we have received. In other words, I started with a literal interpretation, but I'm finding problems with that now, and I'm open to other interpretations, and that does not raise questions at all about my faith. Then he says, in such a case, right, where there's different interpretive options, we should not rush in headlong and so firmly take our stand on one side that if further progress in the search of truth justly undermines this position, we too fall with it. See, if there are problems with my literal interpretation, Augustine is saying, and I double down on it, and I make it a hill that I am going to die on, and then greater knowledge and understanding one day comes along and shows that all of my interpretation is untenable, then suddenly my entire faith will crumble with it. Then he says, that would be to battle not for the teaching of Holy Scripture, but for our own, wishing its teaching to conform to ours, whereas we ought to wish ours to conform to that of sacred Scripture. It's a strong warning from Augustine to followers of Jesus that we don't submit scripture to our desires and our understanding. We submit our desires and understanding to scripture itself. Now, Augustine says one other thing I want to share with you, and then we'll wrap up. Because for Augustine, this is not just about Genesis. Interpreting this passage and wrestling with these issues well is about the witness of the Christian faith. Because people outside of the faith, he says, are often going to shake their heads at followers of Jesus when we believe things that make no sense whatsoever. Listen to what he says. 
He says, now it is a disgraceful and dangerous thing for a non-Christian to hear a Christian presumably giving the meaning of Holy Scripture, but talking nonsense on these topics. Remember, he's talking about Genesis and science here. And we should take all means to prevent such an embarrassing situation in which people show up vast ignorance in a Christian and laugh it to scorn. He goes on and he says, if they find a Christian mistaken in a field which they, that's the non-Christian, themselves know well, and they hear him, that's the Christian, maintaining his foolish opinions about our books, he's talking about the Bible there, then how are they going to believe those books in matters concerning the resurrection of the dead, the hope of eternal life, and the kingdom of heaven? See, for Augustine, those are the real and central and most important matters of faith. The message of resurrection, of life and hope and the kingdom of God. And if we are rejecting uh, common sense science and believing something that makes no sense when we talk about Genesis, how is anyone going to believe anything else we say about the rest of the Bible? We're going to stop there for today. I told you we would leave you hanging. If a literal scientific interpretation of Genesis is fraught with problems, well, then what's the alternative? That's where we'll pick up next week. So let me pray for us. Lord, we um, do thank you that in recent decades and centuries, you've given us the ability to look through microscopes and telescopes and study the world in ways that people couldn't long ago. And I pray more than anything else that it would provoke wonder within us and would actually provoke deeper faith in an amazing and mysterious creator. One who created this world in such amazing ways that it's a bit unfathomable, and yet one who is so close and near to each of us. In our time of need, our time of loneliness, our need of forgiveness, our need of hope, our need of purpose and meaning in life. And so, God, may we, as we wrestle with and through these issues, may you deepen our faith in the midst of it. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.